Imagine learning in a small group intimate setting while exploring unique European locations. EU Vet CE Experiences offers race-approved CE seminars that combine half-day lectures with time to relax and discover captivating cultures. The CE sessions are delivered in English, allowing you to elevate your career while vacationing with loved ones. Experience the perfect blend of learning and luxury at EU Vet CE Experiences interactive seminars in hand-picked European destinations. Elevate your knowledge and recharge simultaneously. Visit euveterinaryce.com to learn more. Separating our ourselves into pieces. And we sort of say, this is the mom part of who I am. And this is the vet part of who I am. And when I'm at work, I'm a vet. And when I'm at home, I'm a mom. And I have clear distinctions and clear boundaries. It sounds nice on paper. That is not really how we work. Welcome to Vet Life Reimagined. Parenthood is not a common conversation in a professional setting, but on Vet Life Reimagined, life means all of us, including parenthood. Dr. Emily Yonker is probably one of the only veterinarians and doulas. Yes, doula. As a doula and childbirth educator, she works one-on-one virtually with veterinarians, specifically as they navigate motherhood and veterinary medicine. She also writes and speaks as an advocate for all parents within the veterinary workplace, bringing awareness to the needs of parents so we can improve workplace well-being and support employee retention. This is a perfect episode for Mother's Day, and even if you're not a mother, there are some really, really, really important things to know in this episode. So on to this amazing conversation. Welcome, Emily. I was just talking before I hit record that I have talked to many people in the profession about the topic around parenthood when it comes to the veterinary profession. And I have a lot of people who have asked questions and who are really excited to learn more about this. I think we need to start with your story, though. So when did you know you wanted to get into veterinary medicine? So I actually like even this part of my story has like a parenting like sidebar with it. (laughs) So our family story when I was growing up was always that when I was like really little, like four, I just walked up to my mom and said, is there such thing as a doctor for animals? Because that is what I want to be. And then it just never changed my mind. (laughs) But the, the parenting part of that is that many years later, I was sitting in our TV room, our playroom with my son, who was like three at the time. And we stumbled across an old TV show on Amazon Prime. Like, you know, you can watch like a whole series for free. And we watched the whole series of David the Gnome. And David the Gnome was a show from the 70s that would have been syndicated in the 80s when I was a kid. There is this lovely little gnome character who lives in the woods and he takes care of animals who get injured. And in the very first episode, he's doing like acupuncture on a goat and like surgically removing a wire. And I had this sudden awakening. Oh my gosh, I watched this when I was four and thought it was amazing and said, I want to be a doctor for animals. And just now remembered that that was the reason I walked up to my mom and asked that question. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's really interesting too, because I, I've really embraced sort of an integrative medicine component to my practice. And like, I'm like, it's all because of David the Gnome. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, thank you to the Gnome. Because um, <laughs> you, you went to vet school and going into vet school, did you have an idea of what your career might look like? Did that change through the four years? So yeah, so actually I was very, I w- I really knew what I wanted by the time I got to vet school. And I realized that that's not the way everybody is. Um, but I was a little older. Um, I had gotten married before vet school and had a couple years of marriage before. And then I did some grad school before I went to vet school. And I knew that I wanted to do integrative medicine before I even went to vet school. And I knew that there's not a residency for that. There, There's not really an internship for that. There's like one now, I think. And so I knew that I had no intention of doing an internship or residency. I knew I needed to go out into the world and get experience. So I was pretty focused. I mean, I started a club in, in vet school that was specific to integrative medicine. And um, I worked with a faculty member, Barbara Kempinen, to create an elective. And so my junior year, I actually got an elective in integrative medicine that she kind of created because she knew I had an interest in it, which was awesome. Um, And then I used all of my externship time 
to basically explore the world of integrative medicine. So I followed a house call that around. I went to a big specialty practice that specifically had an acupuncture service incorporated into it. I spent some time with world famous herbalist Susan Weed, which was one of the most formative experiences of my entire life. And I actually got like credit for doing it. I sort of turned vet school into what I needed it to be to get where I wanted to go. But interestingly, like I already, I was also definitely on the motherhood train by this point. I did not have kids. I, I didn't want to have kids in vet school. And my husband and I were also doing this awkward long distance relationship thing. He was in the Navy. And so it was definitely not the time for us to have kids, but we knew we wanted to. Ever since I was a like a like a tiny person again, I've had these sort of dual paths for myself. Though I wasn't as aware of it at the time, my mother was a childbirth education teacher and she was a labor and delivery nurse. And she would literally teach classes in our living room when I was growing up. And so I would do babysitting for these couples that my mother had taught. And so birth was like a just a normal part of my life. Early infancy caregiving was a part of my life. Um, watching these kids grow up and get older. Um, has been like such an honor to witness. It was a very positive environment for birth. There was no like fear around it. There was no, like it's, there just wasn't. It was just sort of like, well, it's a beautiful thing. And of course you're going to do great. <laughs> <laughs> Even in vet school, like I took, um, and I created an elective for myself. I worked with Dr. Bartol at Auburn University, um, who works on the immune system. And at the time he was really specifically focused on the effects of, um, colostrum and milk on the gut. And so like I delved into basically the benefits of breastfeeding as a vet student, like a special project out of this. And then I took not one, but two theriogenology electives and was part of like the full team in school, even though I had zero interest in going to reproductive medicine. <laughs> I just really like to be around pregnant mares. Like, so basically right out of vet school, We'd been married for seven years. My husband and I met in high school, so we'd known each other for like 15 years. And it was like, okay, it is time. It's time <laughs> to do the baby thing. I was 31 at the time. I went into private practice, worked in a kind of a typical, really busy multi-doctor practice that had pretty good benefits because I, I actually picked my job based on the benefits I wanted. I waited exactly the amount of time I needed to wait for my short-term disability insurance to kick in. <laughs> um, and then we got pregnant. Like, it was like very, like, this is the plan we are moving forward. And so for me, the year after I graduated vet school, I had a baby. And so this has just been, these things have always gone together for me. There's never been like a time where first I did vet things and then I did mom things. It was just a matter of figuring out the best way to make it all happen, which I think is kind of unique. That's not everybody's journey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and maybe this is, is really tactical, but I am, I think this might be something that people might have a question about is you talked about the insurance. That might be kind of a, a something people didn't think about, or if you are in that family planning or picking a place to work, because, oh my goodness, that's a big conversation these days is right. I mean, everybody and their brother is offering these shiny little packages, but what is something maybe that you could elaborate on when you would recommend, like what, what things to look for when you're prioritizing family, but you also want to work in a good practice? What are things like that that you should be looking at? I will say my number one um, thing that's come up when I talk to people about this topic, which is a lot, is hold out for the right thing. You have a little bit more time than you think. You don't want to rush into the wrong thing. The second Thing I will say is that the world has actually changed a lot. It has only been seven, eight years, eight years, but it's a completely different environment than it was eight years ago. Bigger corporate practices have really great benefit packages. And because they have entire HR departments and because they've really standardized things, there's a very straightforward way that things are supposed to work. And there's like a very clear hierarchy and you know who you're supposed to talk to. There are absolutely exceptions to that. And I hear all of the disaster stories that occur. But for the most part, the corporate practices have a very clear set of things in place. A lot of them do require you to purchase separate short-term disability if you want pay 
during the time that you're on maternity leave. Otherwise, it's unpaid leave. Now, in smaller practices, which is where I was for my second and third pregnancies, it's a whole different ballgame. Every single one is different, and you need to be really clear on what that particular practice will and will not do. And for me, I, you know, there's rules about what theoretically that people are allowed to ask you in an interview. They're not allowed to ask about your reproductive status or your childbearing plans. Like they're not allowed to ask that. So I brought it up because I said, this is a major determining factor for how I feel about a job. So we're going to talk about it. Um, Because it's not just an interview where you're trying to get someone to hire you. You are interviewing them to see if this is going to be what you need and want. So treat it like that. I just put my cards on the table and I would say, I have an eight-month-old. He is a priority to me. He is probably not going to be my only child. Let's talk about how leaves work. Let's talk about how paid and unpaid absences work. Um, Let's talk about having to cancel things at the last minute in case I have a sick kid. Like, let's talk about this. And it's amazing once you open the door, like how many different models are out there. People have really thought about this. I've interviewed at practices that have literally like added on whole separate parts to the hospital so they can have an ensuite nursery. I've um, interviewed at places that have just allowed you to bring the baby to work. As long as you work out a way for the child to be cared for where you can also do your job, it's okay to bring your baby. I have interviewed at places that are super flexible with your time so that you can do school drop-off, come in, work until school pick up, and then that's it. That's your whole day. I have interviewed at practices where they have very generous combination vacation flex hours so that whether you are taking sick time for a kid or to go care for a parent, because it's something else that happens when you get older as your parents get older, or whether you actually are on vacation, it's all together and you can use it the way you need to use it. There's pros and cons to that. But for young parents, that's often really helpful. So you just have to ask all the questions. So you have insurance and insurance after you've reached your deductible, which is a big deal, after you've reached your deductible, they're going to pay for like labor and delivery and pregnancy stuff. Occasionally, you can use your HSA if you have a high deductible plan to pay for things like doulas. I did that on my third pregnancy. That was pretty cool. Depending on what state you're in, your insurance may or may not pay for a home birth midwife, but it's almost always going to be an out-of-network expense. So you are going to pay more for that on most insurance plans. For the most part, at least in the states I've lived in, if you have birth centers near you, there's the cost for the birth center and the cost for the hospital for a straightforward vaginal birth are the same. And they do that on purpose because they don't want to compete with the local hospital. So they just price themselves to be the same. Knowing these things in advance really is really helpful. Your insurance, that part of your insurance is not going to pay for your time off. So you use your vacation time. Almost all employers are going to require you to use all of your vacation time first. It sucks completely because that means that on like the hardest two years of your life when you are pregnant and then you have a newborn, you don't get a vacation at all because you've used all of your vacation during your maternity leave, which is not a vacation. So just to be aware of that, you don't get a vacation the year you're pregnant or the year after you're pregnant when you have a baby, just pretty much universal. So you use all of your vacation time for your maternity leave. And then whatever more you want after that, you know, two weeks or four weeks or whatever is unpaid unless you either have an employer who specifically has maternity leave benefits. And there are some states that do, and there are some individual employers that do, or if you have intentionally pre-purchased short-term disability insurance. And short-term disability insurance and paid time off and maternity leave usually don't pay all of your expenses during that time. They pay like 60 or 70%, depending on the details. So all of these things are kind of things to keep in mind when you're trying to figure out your finances during that time. I will say that for all three of mine, I did not take as much time off as I really wanted to because I could not make the finances work, even with short-term disability in place. Um, So I did different things with each pregnancy, depending on what I could figure out, but none of them did I take really as much time as I wanted. So when people ask me, how much time should I take, which is possibly one of the most common questions I get, I'm like, look, how much time I think you should take is basically irrelevant. How much time can you afford to take? Take that. All of it. Don't short yourself. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes. Uh, and if that's yes. only four weeks, have grace with yourself. And I can give you some other advice. If that's eight weeks, less than ideal, but you'll probably be okay. If it's 12 weeks or beyond, understand that you are in less than 1% of the population that gets to have more than 12 weeks in the U.S. anyway. It's not like that in other countries, but in the U.S. And so like, I, I'm so, so happy for you. It is still not enough time, but I am so happy that you get that. So yeah, those, that covers a couple of the common questions I get. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for going into so much yeah. detail there. So you know, before we we forget, a really big part of the story is you know you've gone into integrative medicine. You're you're practicing. So when what is the journey from that point to becoming a doula? And first of all, how do you explain what a doula is? Because when I was I was excited about this interview, and I was telling my husband about it, and then he goes what's a doula? <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. So let's start with what is a doula and then kind of go from there. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So a doula is a non-medical support person. So a doula's job is with emotional and physical birth support was kind of how doulas started. And that role has really expanded. You can now find a lot of doulas doing postpartum work and then you can find a lot of on the childbirth education side. So they have filled a lot of roles. I would say that a doula basically does anything that is non-medical. Now, in our culture, we think of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. Honestly, we think of them as a lot of medical events. And so I will be a little bit more specific about what a doula can do because I think some of what we do is a little invisible until you've been through it. And then after you have a baby, you're like, oh, I really could have used that, but I didn't know I needed it at the time. So part of it is the educational component. You can get tons of free education on the internet these days. I'll be perfectly honest. I never took a childbirth course and I never had a doula. Well, that's kind of not true for my third, but it kind of, well, anyway, <laughs> I did not have paid childbirth education and you can kind of do it on your own. But I, I will also say I'm a huge birth nerd, as I've made very clear at this point. And so I literally, before I came a doula, had an entire like bookshelf full of books on pregnancy, birth and postpartum and infant development and all this stuff, like a whole shelf of books before I was a doula. And so like, if you're not that person who wants to spend a minimum of a hundred hours preparing for the birth of your child, um, you might want to pay someone who can compress that information into what you really need to know in your situation. You don't, and, and I, it's funny because like almost everything covers like what are the stages of labor and like, what are the medical options and what should you eat? Vir virtually everything covers that. And you can find that information anywhere. I, I will say, except for the part about what to eat, all of that is basically irrelevant. And you don't even need that information. Like you don't actually need to know what stage of labor you're in. You need to know how to cope with what's happening to you. You need to know how to make decisions about what's happening. You need to know how to ask questions and advocate and have people on your side who are going to help you walk this path. And those are things that are harder to learn from an external source because they're not tailored to your personality and your circumstances and who you have in your life and what your medical or non-medical issues and needs may be. So that's what a doula does. It helps you narrow down what is right for you under those circumstances. In a birthing space, it's super practical for the most part. Like they're literally providing compression on your back if you're having back labor. They're pressing your hips to help baby rotate during the final kind of third stage. Um, they're literally holding your leg while you're pushing. They're putting a cold cloth on your head. They're changing the lighting. They're uh, bringing you snacks, like literally all the things. They're, the other thing that they do is sort of act as the coordinator, like a wedding coordinator would. So maybe your spouse is the person that you are much more comfortable with touching you. You don't really want strangers touching you during your, during your labor. So they're giving them ideas. It's not like your partner's ever done this before. You know, he doesn't when to or when to provide counter pressure on your back or when it, and so like she is sort of a guide for that sort of being like 
remind her to get up and pee, you know, remind her here, just hand her this. You don't even have to say anything, just hand her this and she'll drink the water and take it back. And then the other thing that a doula does, depending on the doula and depending on your specific circumstances, is she is your sort of non-medical advocate. So when you go into a hospital system, you are definitely in a system, a very, very big system that really has a lot of protocols in place. I mean, like we do in our practice, but on an even bigger scale. (laughs) Um, And so sometimes your individuality can feel a little lost in that. And a doula especially if this is a local doula who works with the hospital system all the time, knows how this whole thing flows. She's done this a lot, but she is not part of the hospital system. So she is a great go-between to help you in your specific circumstances navigate that system. And that in and of itself is possibly the most valuable thing that a birth doula can do. Some, again, this depends on the doula. Some of them have a lot of training in lactation, so they can be really helpful for those first few early days if you're trying to establish breastfeeding or figure out pumping or all those things. Some of them specialize in certain things. So you can find doulas who specialize in twin work or doulas who specialize in complex medical needs work with babies and NICUs. Um, you can, and then you transition into your postpartum doula. Your postpartum doula literally comes to your house and does things for you. This depends on what you need and the individual doula, but some of them will take the baby so you can sleep. Some of them will do laundry, some of them will cook. Some of them will have massage skills and will massage um, and do belly binding and um, all kinds of other like special specific skills that they have developed. Um, And again, some of them have sleep training knowledge and they can help you navigate that transition. Um, So it's a wide ranging field. And you can pretty much find what you need in any parenting sphere by looking at least in doula circles. My specific focus, since I work virtually, is on childbirth education and then planning for the postpartum so that you have all the things in place to make that experience a little smoother. It's going to be rocky, but we can make it smoother. And then I definitely do some emotional support on the postpartum side so that like when people... Well, so far, it's been mostly for people who didn't really plan, and then they really need some postpartum support. But certainly, if I've, especially if I've been a con- working with someone consistently, we just plan ahead for like three postpartum conversations, like from the beginning. Like we're going to space them out predictably, and we're going to be able to talk about certain things as we go. So I do virtual work, so that's definitely really different than doing birth doula support, but it's all still in the same kind of skill set. We would like to thank our sponsor, VetBadger, the all-in-one practice management software that puts relationships first. Created by working veterinary parents, VetBadger provides all the communication, team workflow, and medical management tools you need to run an efficient practice and get home to the relationships that matter most. In support of parents in VetMed, VetBadger will be offering a signed copy of the book, Pregnancy and Postpartum Considerations for the Veterinary Team by Emily Singler to everyone who registers for a demo between Mother's Day, May 12th, and Father's Day, June 16th. To register, visit VetBadger.com and find the link in the description below. Yeah. Oh, no. When we were talking before, you know, our pre-call, when you were talking about emotional support, even like before, like during the pregnancy, because I can just see how valuable that is. Be, I mean, when you were describing your experience with childbirth as a child, because your mother, you know, it, it was just a, a normal, happy, this is going to be fine. Everybody's, this is great. That is not how I think about birth. Like it's terrifying to me. And then I hear all these parents talk about like the the worst of the worst stories about being parents. It's like you're not helping. <laughs> so being able to have that person who will be there emotionally through the whole thing, I think is so valuable. And then as you're talking about postpartum, and I apologize if this is a silly question, but when does postpartum depression usually occur? That's a tricky one because you're going to get a different answer from like a textbook versus a lived experience. So interestingly, postpartum depression was not even labeled as a thing like in that, you know, big book of psychiatric diseases until the 1990s. Didn't even exist as a diagnosis before that. 
And so finally, when it became an official diagnosis that you could receive from a psychiatrist, had very specific guidelines, and you couldn't even diagnose it until someone was past six weeks because they had had to have had symptoms for six weeks. You couldn't have developed signs after one year. So it's like this really kind of narrow space to define it. The lived reality is that some people, and I would actually say that veterinarians frequently are like this, because they know that they have a previous history of anxiety, depression, OCD, um, or a number of other things, they're already looking for the signs and they can see it sometimes within the first few days, sometimes within the first few weeks. Definitely most veterinarians have recognized it in themselves before they get to that six weeks mark. Some people are, and so much of this depends on your provider too. Some people already have a plan in place for dealing with it. Um, and so they've already lined up their therapy appointments. They've already talked to their doctor about adjusting their meds doses. Um, they're on it. For people who don't have quite as much of that personal experience and being able to see it in themselves because they haven't had a history of it before, it can take some time before you can figure out how much of this is just sleep deprivation, because that's real. How much of this is frustration because this is hard and this is new stuff that I've never done before and I'm learning new skills. How much of this is like literally like discomfort from like a C-section or, or something. And how much of this is truly like there's there's something different in my brain. So it can take some time to recognize that. Um, and sometimes you're several months in before you really see it. There's also another thing that can happen where you're actually okay for that first few months. There's a lot of neuroprotective hormones going on during that time. And they actually literally protect the brain from some of these traumas. But as those things start to fade at six months or nine months or a year or 18 months, that's when it hits. I think that is under-recognized but it is absolutely a thing. Then it's no longer called postpartum depression. And I guess we, I, I could say, okay, sure. You can call, you can call it whatever you want, but this is the depression that happened after you have a baby. <laughs> yeah. The reason why I wanted to specifically ask this question was, you know, back to an earlier question. If one of the most common questions are how long do I take off work? You know, well, what about if the postpartum depression is really kicking in when you're back at work. So to me, that's like layering on, you know, stressors potentially. And what do we do about supporting colleagues who are, are very career driven? They're having to go back or not have, they're choosing to go back to work to some degree, but, um, you know, we, we love what we do. So how do we also support colleagues in the veterinary profession on kind of dealing with a lot of different layers of some of these anxieties and, and things with postpartum? I think this is actually really hard because I'm not going to lie. My, my like gut reaction here is like, well, obviously we just need to dismantle patriarchy and capitalism and that would pretty much solve the problem. Um, <laughs> we'll work on that. <laughs> um, but yeah. In the meantime, we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice as a culture. This is not like unique to vets. Separating our ourselves into pieces. And we sort of say, this is the mom part of who I am. And this is the vet part of who I am. And when I'm at work, I'm a vet. And when I'm at home, I'm a mom. And I have clear distinctions and clear boundaries. That sounds nice on paper. That is not really how we work. Your brain is in both places. You don't leave parts behind. The parts of you that create hormones are changing constantly, no matter what setting you're in. And they actually respond to the setting you're in, which makes things even more complicated. So I, I think that part of it is an acknowledgement that this person is literally different than they were and that we sort of need to go slow and find out who they are now. And they don't know yet. They're still figuring that out. You just need to offer a lot of grace, space permission to be human. <laughs> and sometimes that looks like giving a wide range of acceptability to emotions. This is something we really struggle with because we like to label things as either professional or unprofessional. And when you're in professional mode, you don't have a wide range of emotions. There are like three emotions that are acceptable in a professional setting. 
And so anytime someone is experiencing emotions outside of that limited range, they have to stuff it down and hide it. And so we really need to make sure that we give people some space to experience those things. So it really depends on on the environment you're in, what that's going to look like. If you know someone well enough and you're comfortable enough with someone, you're sharing an office, just ask them, like, just say, how are things? Do you need to talk about something? What's going on at home today? Like, give them the opening. If it's a little bit less of an intimate setting and you don't know that person as well, then it's still okay to check in with them and just, you know, don't push them on it, but be like, hey, you know, do you, do you need anything today? How are things going? And I almost guarantee they're just going to be like, everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, it's that like classic image um, of like the dog in the burning building. And he's like, this is fine. This is fine. This is fine. Like 90% it's going to be that. So it's really hard to tell in a professional setting what's really going on, but consistently keeping the door open for that is really helpful. The other thing I think that we can do on a one-on-one level is to be a little bit more open ourselves with what's going on with us. And I have really started doing that in the workplace. I frequently talk about my kids to the level it's probably obnoxious to people who aren't really into kids. And I'm okay with that. Hi, we'll be back with the second half of the show after this quick break. But first, I wanted to take a moment and thank you for listening to the Vet Life Reimagined podcast. If you're enjoying the show, the best way to support us is to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to reach more listeners and we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And now back to the episode. And you know what it's done? I mean, I see it almost across the board, almost universally. People then come to me and tell me about their dogs or their kids or their parents or their plants. And it it's it's permission to bring your life into your life, <laughs> to be all of your parts. And when we have a culture that allows us to be all of our parts, we have so much more joy, but we also feel seen during the times that we are struggling. And being seen is such a foundational human need. It's just part of being humans. We are such social creatures. We need each other. We need to be witnessed. And so we can do that for each other, even in a professional setting. I mean, I I think that that is some of the biggest thing. From like a more like top-down level, um, I would love to see flex time be a whole lot more common. I would love to see a whole lot more graduated return to work where you come back for like a day a week or two days a week without it like somehow blowing up your maternity leave coverage because you're not allowed to work during the week that you're using your maternity leave and stupid arbitrary rules that don't really apply in real life. It doesn't make any sense Um, because the people who make these rules aren't the people who have to like experience the results of the rules. So, I mean, yeah, there's a tons of like top down things. I mean, obviously, I think universal maternity leave would be great. <laughs> um, I think that that should become an industry standard. I mean, an industry where we're over 90% female and 85% of women are going to have a baby during some point in their life. You want to know about employee retention? Make it a workplace that supports being a parent. I mean, to me, this seems so incredibly obvious. But when I look at what's out there, I'm like, Maybe it's not as obvious as I think it is. Um, because I'm so open about my priorities, I think I invite people into my life that are also really into making family a priority. Um, but that doesn't mean that everywhere is like that. And so I, I think sometimes I have to remind myself that a lot of institutions have not come along. Every once in a while, I run across a mom who literally gets no paid time of any sort, no short-term disability, only her vacation time she has built up. And because she had some kind of complication during her third trimester, she's actually used all her vacation time. So she literally has no paid time off at all after her baby's born. Every once in a while, I run across that and I just get really mad. And then I have to remind myself, like, actually, this is pretty normal. And that's really not acceptable. And we need to change that as an industry, as a country, it's just not really okay. I mean, if if we don't, we're just going to lose more and more people to 
industries that are better at this, frankly. Yeah. Oh, you said so many important things in that the allowing yourself to be fully human and thank you for highlighting that there is no, I turn it off at the door or I think in our pre-call, you said something like you take your ovaries to work or you take your uterus to work or something, <laughs> something like that, our whole selves. But then you also said something that, again, as someone who maybe hasn't really gone through this experience, it doesn't, it doesn't come to my mind as, as well, is the after you do have a child, you do change a little bit in who you are. And I think this is a really hard concept for people maybe to sit in and think about and understand and be okay with. And so I know that my question was, how do we support people in this? But I, you know, I think also allowing us to support ourselves and listening to our body, our thoughts, things are going to change. That's going to be okay. And it makes sense as, you know, I mentioned this to you as well as I've heard a lot of these wonderful people I've interviewed that say they've had a child and that is kind of like a, a point for them where something kind of changes. And sometimes that change aligns with a, a slight change in, in their career path. And I, I want to make sure that people do know that that is okay, you know, explore that. And if having a, a doula or just surrounding yourself with good people that are open to letting you think out loud of these thoughts that you're having without judgment, I think that's really important. Yeah. So, you know, there's actually a term for this and it's a term that's been around since the seventies, but it's really gained attention in the last 10 years. The term is matrescence. Matrescence is the biological process of becoming a mother. And it is far more complicated than most of us realize it is. I only ran across this term, like in a practical way, just a few years ago. So I had already been a mom for a while. And I will say it was so validating to read about this. I was like, oh my gosh, Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, this is real. I'm not, it's not just something I made up to explain what's happening. Some of it's chemical. Some of it has to do with hormones. Um, oxytocin is a really big deal. Oxytocin is the love hormone. It's It gets activated for all kinds of reasons because it turns out that humans have basically evolved to not just use oxytocin for its very specific purpose of like milk letdown and uterine contractions. We've evolved oxytocin to be really quite expansive in all of our social relationships. When you look at a picture of a puppy, kind of the classic, you can feel an oxytocin surge and it feels so good. It makes you go, (laughs) vets get oxytocin surges a lot. I mean, like this is literally like part of our job and we can feel it once we like key into it. It makes you want to connect is what oxytocin does. It also lowers your blood pressure. It also decreases pain. So like when someone who you really trust and who you're comfortable with touches your body, it releases oxytocin. And a classic for this is when you go to the hairstylist and they're like, like you get a haircut and they're like running their fingers through your hair. Those of us who can find our, who can relax during that experience, which is not everybody, but for those of us who can relax during that experience, you leave and you feel so good. And you don't even know why you're like, it was just a haircut, but oh my God, it felt so good. And we feel chattier. And this is why people over share with their stylist. Like, so this is just part of the human experience, but during pregnancy, the end of pregnancy, oxytocin levels go up, 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 up. It's like a hundred times higher than it would be in your normal life. So think about the feeling you, when you see a puppy picture and multiply it times a hundred, this is like just bathing the entire body of a pregnant woman all the time. It's It is, it literally is sort of mind altering when you get into the right in the few days before you go into labor, your brain literally doesn't work the same. Like you have a harder time focusing. You're kind of dreamy. (laughs) (laughs) Like people start talking and you just sort of phase out. You're like, I can't really follow this conversation. (laughs) It's the baby brain, right? Is that what everybody calls it? It's real. And that's actually what the research started on. They were like, is baby brain real? Can we like measure this? And that's how all the research on it started. So they actually have MRIs of moms and you can see what they were like pre-pregnancy. You can see what they were like at the end of their pregnancy and you could, then they measured them out. And there's been several different studies, one at like two weeks, one at like six months, one at two years. The changes, some of the changes are short-term. Some of the changes in literally the brain, like the shape of the brain changes. 
the limbic system gets larger. The neocortex actually shrinks, sadly. Um, and this, some of these changes, especially to the limbic system, are permanent. Most of the brain mass does come back within six months of, of actually giving birth, but it, it never goes back to normal ever. This is a permanent change that the brain undergoes, which I think everybody knew about baby brain. We knew that moms underwent an identity. I think most of us is due to external factors. Like you have this person to care for now, and, and this, is, this is a lot of love, and we have to make sure we prioritize this. But we didn't actually realize the very specific results that happen in the brain due to this bathing in oxytocin. And now that we understand that, like it's, first of all, it's validating to those of us who are like, oh, that makes so much sense. But to those of us who are preparing for it, like being like, okay, this is going to feel different in one way or another. And that's like normal. That's part of the process. And, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, because like this isn't just so that we have baby brain, like that doesn't, like, why would that be a thing? From an evolutionary process, from like looking back, you're like anthropology, like why is this the way it is? It's because we simplify down during that postpartum. We don't need to be solving math equations. We need to be focusing on this tiny helpless person in front of us. And that because of our upright position and our pelvic shape and our giant brains has to come out incredibly immature. So they need so much care in comparison to other mammals. So our brains are changed to simplify down, to focus on connection, to pick up on really subtle social cues and body language. And as a result, we're better parents. That lasts. But then it's interesting because it turns out that some of those skills start applying to other areas of our life. So moms... I mean, this is a generality because we're all individuals, right? So not every single person is a stereotype. But compared to who you were before you had kids, you are better about picking up on environmental and social cues after you have kids. That is, I mean, I think when I think of it, I'm like, that is very valuable as a skill as a veterinarian. Um, and it and just as a human in the world and as a team member as part of a workplace, like someone who can like feel the room and like knows the vibe and then can act on that. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You cannot pay for that. You can't really teach that. You can actually teach that, but it's not, it's not the same as, as just doing it. Um, and so like, this is like mom's superpower. And this is like a real thing that we can measure by looking at MRI scans in the brain. And you can actually look at the people, they, they literally did this. They correlated the amount of oxytocin with the amount of brain change, and they could see the correlation. So for those people who are fortunate enough to have birthing experiences and early postpartum experiences that are the most supportive of their physiology, their brain goes through this remodeling process more consistently and to a greater extent. And so you'll definitely find moms who had it a little bit with the first, but maybe not as much. And But by the time they get to their second or their third, it's more pronounced. And that's because that particular woman's brain, the full spectrum of the change didn't happen the first time. And other, other women do have the full spectrum of change the first time. Um, so it's really interesting when you talk to moms who had um, just a really hard time with their first one for, there's so many different things that can happen either with their pregnancies or their births or, or babies with challenging needs. And they have a harder time and then they have a second baby. And maybe the circumstances were better. Maybe they weren't. Maybe the baby's actually more challenging and they thought it was going to be harder, but it's not. It's actually easier. And part of that is that we have, you know, learned some basic skills. But part of that is literally that their brain had a had a more complete transition during that second experience. And so it's it's just amazing to like think about like this is literally a biological process. This is not just a cultural phenomenon. Like adolescence, it's like adolescence. And what I tell people all the time is it's like adolescence, yes. However, instead of happening in 10 years, it happens in about one. And you have to keep another helpless human alive at the same time and be a functioning adult in the world. So like, let's have some grace. <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad you brought it back to that these skills actually can be so beneficial in the veterinary environment too, because I, I did not want people to say, oh, all these women, now that you've had a baby, you're no longer 
at par to to come back to work or or be a valuable member. And I, I that is absolutely not true. I just kept thinking about all these skills and being able to be more aware, being able to make that connection with another human being like a pet owner enhances one of the most important valuable skills that as veterinarians we can have. So I, I think this is so fascinating. And before we run out of time, just to kind of recap, <laughs> I got you all into the, the doula side and, and what does your career currently look like being both? I mean, you are, you are full veterinarian and you're doing, you mentioned virtual doula work. So what does your, your day-to-day kind of look like? How would you describe your career today? Um, So, you know, I will say it's kind of constantly in flux and it's about to change again (laughs) and it'll probably change shortly again after that. So we're definitely in a big transitional time for me, but right now I do a a patchwork and I kind of like the idea of a patchwork because I don't, I don't feel like I fit in one space completely at all. So I do integrative medicine and rehabilitation medicine twice a week. I do ER once or twice a week. It depends. I alternate weeks. And then I have, that gives me a couple days to do other things. And so I, I have like a dedicated sort of like doula day right now. I'm also teaching a live uh, herbs for pets class here locally. And then I have kind of a dedicated day on Sunday. That's Sunday fun day with my family. And, you know, I arrange my schedule in such a way that I can still take my kids to dance class and I'm still home for most bedtimes, but I intentionally work a really long ER shift every other week so that I can like compress things together and not have to work as many days. So like, I think that that it's a matter of figuring out your priorities And then figuring out how to meet as many of those as you can. And that is just constantly shifting. And it has over time. Now, I will say my husband had a pretty major, you know, identity shift along with parenting, really more so than I did. Um, And it was really surprising to him. Um, He didn't really see it coming. Yeah. So men, this is thing for men too. It's a big identity shift. They don't have oxytocin to help them. Actually, it doesn't have the neuroprotective effects that it does for women. And so he definitely kind of had to struggle with some things. And he basically decided that from a priority perspective for the things that were the most meaningful for him, he wanted to be around when his kids were really little. So he's a stay-at-home parent right now means I have a lot of flexibility to lean into whatever it is I'm interested in. I don't have to work within the confines of an external child care source. And I have before, um, back when he was a PhD student, we used daycare and I had a condensed schedule. So we only had to use limited daycare. Um, so we've changed over the years. It's, it's, it's a constantly evolving. There's not like a rule for how it has to look. And I, I think that that's the biggest thing I've learned. Just yesterday, I was talking to a, a client about it, that it's hard for me to give parenting advice to people. I actually find it much easier to deal with, <laughs> with pregnancy, birth, and postpartum because it, a it's a very finite period of time. I'm like, I mean, the next 18 years, I mean, there's no rules. You just figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and every kid is different, and every situation every kid is, is different. different. You yeah. just take the time to figure that one out, and and who you are now, and who your spouse is now, and adjust accordingly, and don't feel like you have to do one thing forever. And I mean, that's. Like that's what vet med's all about. That's what this whole podcast is all about. It's like there are so many options. If you don't like how it looks right now, just do something different. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that's where I am right now. Is I love some of the things I do, um, but I don't want to only do those things. So I just keep changing it. <laughs> and I think that is completely beautiful, and as it should be. And and thank you. I'm glad we got to put that in there as well. Is the the husband's side of things or, you know, the significant other side as well is, you know, even if they aren't the one that's physically pushing a child out of their body, um, (laughs) they are going through a lot too. And so that's why I really respect parental leaves and leaving that space for, for them to have that change as well. So thank you for sharing that part. Maybe we'll have to ask more questions to dads and, (laughs) and how they deal with that as well. So well, um, I'm going to rapid fire these questions for you. So the final four questions. Uh, the first one is, what is something that people get wrong about you? I feel like I'm pretty much an open book. <laughs> Which version of me you see, like what your assumptions are about me. So like people who might see me at work 
may assume that I'm frankly pretty conventional. I don't have anything about me that stands out, um, but actually I'm a, I live my life in a very different way. Those are people who've known me in other aspects. So just assume I'm like a crazy hippie. And <laughs> when I do anything conventional, like at all, they're like, wait, you drink soda i'm like i mean a couple times a year i don't drink a lot of soda but yeah i do <laughs> that's so, so i think it's which version you get like what you expect and so it's actually a really hard question for me yeah i don't know i mean i'm a pretty conservative kind of boring person in a lot of ways but i'm i'm not afraid of making some pretty radical changes in my life at any given time so i think <laughs> i love that about you <laughs> uh, the the second question is uh, what is a hidden skill or interest you have? This one's hard too, because I'm kind of an open book and I like to just talk about whatever I'm really into. So there is no hidden. Um, <laughs> however, something that comes up, like what's a weird human thing that you can do? I am really, really good at pouring pills into containers, like to the point that I'm like, I can just visualize 50 and I just pour 50. It's amazing. And then we got a pill counter at work and the skill is entirely useless. <laughs> so can you like guess the number of candies in the candy jar or something like that that for some reason oh, okay <laughs> that's hilarious um a third question is what is a something on your bucket list I mean this is such a classic one like everybody answers this way but it's true for a reason I really want to go back into international travel um I've traveled internationally just a couple of times and absolutely loved it. And I am not in a phase in my life where that is really plausible. So I just daydream about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay too. But we went to the South of France during, actually during that school, my husband and I went to the South of France as sort of like a second honeymoon. And I've just been like, yes, that was amazing. I mean, the air literally smells like lavender and basil and I, I could see there. All. I want to go explore more. <laughs> Very good. And finally, what is something you are grateful for? I actually have a gratitude practice, like just a, like a regular practice of gratitude. So I have so many things I'm grateful for at any given time. Um, I I think that the one that comes to mind that I'm just constantly reminded of is this place that I live right now is kind of magical. We sort of stumbled across it and it's uh, it used to be an organic farm. I'm, I'm not a farmer. Um, but I live on what used to be an organic farm and we have all this space for my kids to roam and we have hiking trails that literally like start in our backyard. And so my children have this like beautiful, like wild, huck thin existence. And I just walk outside and I can smell the honeysuckle and I, you know, see my little sad, not well cared for herb garden, but it's there. <laughs> And it just feels like I cannot believe, I cannot believe this is real. This is, this is amazing. That's my current gratitude for the day. Thank you for being part of Vet Life Reimagined. If you are interested to learn more from Dr. Emily, you can sign up for her newsletter, I did, and find out more about the free classes that she teaches from time to time. Her website is veterinariandoula.com. You can also follow her on Facebook, The Veterinarian Doula, and her Instagram handle is at veterinariandoula. And if you are headed to Vet Girl U in August, she will be an exhibitor. And last but not least, to all the mothers out there, happy Mother's Day.